Hi there, and welcome to Vineyard Church Delaware County's podcast. My name is Michael Hansen. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and I am so glad that you have joined us for this week's message. I'm going to have a little bit more to say at the end, but for now, enjoy the teaching. Thanks, Michael. Hey. It is so good to be with you guys this morning. Great to be with you. Uh, 81. 81. Does anybody know what the significance of that number is today, specifically? I'll give you a hint. It's not my birth. That's not my birth age. It's not the age how old I am. That probably wasn't much of a hint. 81. 81. There are 81 days left in 2020. 81 days left in this year. And if you were here last week or maybe you watched us online or caught up with us later in the week uh, and, you, and you watched the message from last year, you heard Michael talk about how so many of us have been feeling, how so many of us have been feeling that we just can't wait for this year to be over, that we just want, just, we just want a fresh start, another year, because this year's just been so tough, one thing after the other after the other. But if you heard that talk last week, he talked about how, what if God is still wanting to do something in this tough season? What if he's wanting to do a lot of things in us during this difficult season? We don't want to miss those opportunities. You know, when it comes to things like war, if you talk to somebody who's a military person, they'll tell you, if you can avoid it at all costs, you never want to fight a battle on more than one front. Right? You never want to be fighting a battle on more than one front because if you do that, then you're basically fighting two different wars. And three would be like almost impossible. But it feels like that's kind of what we've been doing this year. We've had, you know, there's between COVID, between protests and racism, between uh, now we're coming into elections. It feels like there's just, it's like this battle after battle after battle. And for some of you, you're in the thick of it. You're really in the thick of it, meaning like you're a nurse or you're a police officer, or maybe you're a person who uh, you're going to volunteer at the election polls in a couple, you know, in a couple weeks here. Like, and you're in the thick of it. And for others of us, maybe we're not as much. But, but we're still, we're weary, right? We're fatigued. We're just ready to move on. We're ready to get through this. It feels like we're stuck in this pit and we just can't seem to get out. It seems like every time we think we're getting out, we just can't seem to get out. How are we going to get through this? How are we going to make it to tomorrow? And the answer is, of course, with God. We're going to make it with God. How are we going to get through this? Of course, it's going to be walking alongside Jesus who promised never to leave us or forsake us. But that doesn't mean it's going to be easy, right? That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. And one of the things that I believe Jesus is inviting us into during this season and how we're going to get through this is growing in something we're going to call kingdom resilience. Kingdom resilience. How are we going to make it a little bit longer? Resilience. How are we going to make it through tomorrow? Resilience. Resilience means grit. It means toughness. It means being able to bounce back from things. But resilience, it requires some things. It requires hope. It requires faith. It requires courage in something. Or maybe, better yet, in someone greater than our circumstances. And as a follower of Jesus, resilience doesn't mean getting really good at pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. No, it doesn't mean that at all. It means, it means taking one more step with God. Kingdom resilience is just taking one more, just taking the next step with God. 
it, it's not about seeing a thousand steps in front of us and, and, you know, and, and shooting for that goal. It's just taking one more step at a time with God, with the, with the God who never leaves us. Just left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. And one of the greatest resilient stories uh, of, in the Bible of, uh, where we see someone just taking one step with God, one after the other, is the story of Joseph. Is the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Joseph, who walked alongside God, uh, where God basically took, and took him from being, well, kind of a spoiled younger bratty brother to a slave, to a, then a prisoner, to then the governor and really savior of Egypt and really the uh, savior of the known world at the time. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be in this series that we're calling Resilient, where we're going to exploring the life of Joseph, kind of from beginning to end, little chunks at a time. And my prayer is that, that God is going to come alongside each one of us, collectively and individually, uh, to show us, hey, here's the next step. Here's the one next step that I'm asking you to walk with me in. And then here's the next one, and here's the next one. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. So we're going, to, we're going to start off looking in Genesis 37. So if you have a Bible or Bible app on your phone, you want to go to Genesis 37, we're going to be looking at that chapter today, at least part of it. Well, we'll be looking at all of it. We'll be paraphrasing some of it. It's a little bit long. Um, but here's where we basically meet Joseph. Joseph, we meet him as an adolescent, as a 17-year-old boy. And we realize that the very first set of challenges that Joseph faces, because he faced more challenges than most of us will ever even imagine experiencing. But the very first set of challenges that he faces wasn't out there in the world. It wasn't out there in the world. It was actually in, in the home. It was in the home with his own family, with his own brothers. The first battle, the first war he had to face that got through him was with his own family. The place that was supposed to be the safest, most caring and loving of places uh, was not. And isn't that true for many of us? For many of us, some of the very first toughest circumstances we faced in life was really in our homes. And maybe, you know, in challenging uh, places uh, with siblings, in challenging places with parents, uh, in challenging places maybe now as you're older with a spouse. And no matter how wonderful your family experience was or is, no, there are no perfect families, right? There are no perfect families. We can all relate at least a little bit to this story when it comes to understanding this, this family mess. And so we're going to start off Genesis 37, verse 1, and read about this family. Uh, it says this in verse 1, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. And this is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Billa and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel, that's another name for Jacob, he had two names, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made him an ornate robe for him. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. And he said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheave rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. And his brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us 
and they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. He didn't learn the first time, apparently. <laughs> Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. And when he told this, uh, when he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream that you had where your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down on the ground to you, before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. We'll stop there. Now first, we meet Jacob. Jacob is also known as Israel, is the dad. He's the father. He's the patriarch. He's the big papa. Right? And Jacob has a son named Joseph. But Joseph has 11 other brothers, 10 older than him, one younger than him. 11, 12 boys. Can you imagine the noise in that home? Like I have two sons. I can't imagine it. I know how loud it is in our house. 12. But, but Joseph's experience in this family was different than the other boys. It was different than the other boys. And isn't that true for some of us? That in our families, you could have been raised in the same house by the same parents or parent, you know, as your siblings, and yet realize, I think I've had much different experience than they had, or at least a perceived different experience than they had. Now, we read multiple times in this story that Joseph's brothers, they hated him. They hated him. Now, this isn't like when, you know, two little kids or two brothers and sisters are fighting, and they're like, I hate you, right? And then two minutes later, they're best friends. I love you. You're my best friend. No, this isn't like that at all. Like, they hated him through and through. They hated him, and we see a couple different reasons why. First of all, we see that, that Joseph was his dad's favorite son. Favorite son. Verse 3, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had, had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. Now, a little backstory if you're not familiar with it. Jacob, the dad, uh, had children with four different women. Four different women, two wives, two concubines, and his favorite wife was Rachel. So Jacob has a history of playing favorites. His favorite wife was Rachel, and Rachel could not have children for a very long time. She couldn't have children for a long time. So, so Jacob had, had sons, had daughters with his, these other women, these other wives, concubines, and, and he couldn't, but Rachel couldn't have children for a really, really long time. And, and finally, Rachel gets pregnant, and she has a son named Joseph. And so this is the long-awaited son, and, Joseph, and Jacob, from the beginning, favors Joseph over the other sons. Now, the dumbest part of all, in my mind, in my opinion, is that Jacob doesn't even try to hide it. He doesn't even try to hide his favoritism. He makes him this ornate robe that he doesn't make any of the other boys. This, 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 this technicolor dream coat, right? This coat of many colors, right? This basically a ruler's robe, a ruler's robe, like a king's robe. And what's interesting about this, that I, when I was researching this, I found out that the word they use to describe the robe or the coat that he makes them is, is the Hebrew word pasim. And pasim means, it means ornate. It means multicolored or very colored, but it also means wrists or ankles, which is kind of a, you know, how do those things go together? But wrists or ankles. And basically what it means is that this robe was a full-length robe. It came from his wrists all the way down to his, the ground, basically. Now, why is that significant? Well, it's significant because as Joseph's walking on in this robe, this wasn't the kind of a robe that a working man would wear. You know, the kind of clothing that the other brothers would have wore out in the fields with the sheep would not have been this kind of robe. They would have wore a short sleeve robe and a robe that didn't go past their knees because they would need to be able to move. 
They would need to, they would need to be able to sweat. They would need to be able to work. And so here we see that Joseph isn't wearing that kind of clothing. He's wearing this kind of a robe. What does that tell us about him? It tells us that Joseph didn't do a lot of work, probably. That he got kind of a, a little bit of the easier stick, or the easier deal, or the easier, however you say that, the easier end of the deal, right? And so no wonder his brothers were frustrated. So, so he's the favorite. He gets special gifts. He doesn't seem to have to work as hard as they do. And he's a tattletale. He's a snitch. Like really, verse 2, it says, Joseph a young man of 17 was tending the flocks with his brothers and his, the sons of Billa and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Joseph, Joey, what are you doing? Come on. You aren't helping yourself here, right? You're tattletaling on your older brothers. That is not going to go well. And if that isn't enough, they hate him because he thinks he's better than them or he, he seems like he, he's more important than them because he has these dreams. He has these dreams, and whether it's pride in Joseph or he's just naive, we don't know the case. But he tells them these dreams, that one day his mom, his dad, his 11 brothers, they're all going to bow down to him, that he's going to rule over them. And he's the 11th son in a very hierarchical society. We don't think about that much today because we don't put the same kind of status on the order of our children. But to be the 11th son basically meant that there was almost no no, I, it was almost impossible to imagine that he would ever have authority over them because the firstborn was going to have the, mo- you know, the most authority next, next down the line. And, and, you know, I think about if you, those of you who are with kids or if you're kids in the room, you know, those, you remember the, sto- the movie Frozen? Have you seen the movie Frozen? You know, the bad guy in the first movie Frozen, Prince Hans, he tries to trick Anna into marrying him. Why does he do that? Why does he do that? It's because he's the 13th can't even do 13 with my hands. He's the 13th prince. He's the 13th in the line of the family. And he knows he's never going to have a rule or have any authority in his kingdom, in the family. So he's got to marry outside the kingdom to, to be king, basically, to have authority. And that's, that's what we're seeing here. Joseph's dream sounds impossible. It sounds impossible. But if you know the rest of the story, it actually does come true in a very crazy way. Uh, but that's not the point here. The point is, come on, Joseph. Come on. Don't be so naive to flaunt this special, unique, rare calling on your life over to your older brothers. It's not going to go well. And, it, and of course, it doesn't. His brothers, it says in verse 11, were jealous, but his father kept the matter in mind. This isn't going to go well. But in verse 11, there's this subtle thing, but notice Jacob's response. It says that he kept the matter in mind. He thinks about it. He thinks about it. But he doesn't really do anything about it. Now, he does say, come on, Joseph. You really think that you're going to rule over all of us? But he doesn't really do anything above that. He must have seen the hatred that his brothers had for him. I mean, they couldn't say a nice thing to him, it says here. They hated him. He must have known that was not going to go well. But all through the passage, we see this, this passivity, honestly, of Jacob as a father. This pattern of passivity. And he could have set all the boys down. He could have said, boys, sit down. We're having to talk about this. Enough. Enough. We're not doing this anymore. You guys need to, you know, stop treating your brother, you know, hatefully and being so mean to him. Right? You need to, Joseph, you need to stop, you know, flaunting your special calling. Or like, stop. Enough. We're not going to do this. But he doesn't do any of that. He just kind of lets it go. 
and it's about to blow up in his face. And, and the next part of the story, I'm just going to kind of paraphrase for time. And, but basically, the next part of the story is it does. It gets really ugly really quick. The story continues. It says that one day the older brothers, the older brothers, they're out. They take the, sh- the sheep. They go out in the fields, and they head towards a town called Shechem. And Jacob gets very concerned. The da- dad gets very d- concerned, and he sends Joseph out to check on his brothers. Again, why is Joseph not with them? We don't know, but he's not. Uh, and we don't know exactly why Jacob's concerned, but it could be that he doesn't trust the older boys. There's a history of that, of being troublemakers. Uh, but it could also be that Shechem was an unsafe place to be. That it was an unsafe place to be because a couple chapters before, in chapter Genesis 33 and 34, when we meet, before we meet Joseph, Jacob takes his whole family to the town of Shechem. And he shows up in Shechem, and there he meets a man named Shechem, which is very confusing, I know. Like, hey, what town is this, Shechem? What's your name, Shechem? Um, what color is the sky, Shechem? I don't think you understand what I'm talking about. No, it wasn't like that at all. But he goes to the town, Shechem. He meets a man named Shechem, and Shechem does this really terrible thing to one of Jacob's daughters, Dinah. There are actually girls in this family, if, if you were wondering, like, where's all the girls? Uh, but this really terrible thing, and do you know what Jacob does? Nothing. He doesn't do anything. But the brothers are furious. The brothers are furious, and they set a trap for Shechem and all the men in the town, and basically, and they kill them all, and they steal everything in the town. This is a pretty brutal story, a pretty, pretty brutal, tough time to live. But, but we see again the passivity, the passivity of Jacob as a father. And, and, uh, and basically, this is the town they've gone to. And you don't think that Jacob isn't worried like, hey guys, um, I think there might be some people around who remember what you've done. I'm a little worried. So he sends Joseph out to check on him. Sends Joseph out to check on him. And here comes Joseph across the field in his Technicolor dream coat, you know? You get easy to spot, right? Coming across the field. And they're so full of jealousy, so full of hatred. They plot to kill him. They plot to kill him. And the oldest, Reuben, Reuben has a little bit of conscience, a little bit of conscience. And he says, hey, so his blood's on our hands. Let's throw him in this empty well here. Let's put him in this pit and just leave him. Reuben's thinking, I'm going to come back later and rescue him. But he's, he's thinking, let's just do that. So they, they do. They, they rip off his robe. They throw him in the well. And, the, and then they go, and they, this is the weirdest part. They sit there beside the well, and they eat their lunch. If that's not messed up enough, just to mock, just to mock him. And then they see, they see some traders coming down the road, some tradesmen. And, they, and one of the brothers speaks up and says, I got an idea. Let's make some money off of him. Let's sell him as a slave. 20 pieces of silver they sell him. 20 pieces of silver. That wasn't even a lot back then. You know, a young seven, Joseph, 17, healthy, young male. Uh, that was a way under a wage that a typical slave would be sold for. They're just doing it just to get even, just to get revenge. They, they take the robe, they smear it in goat's blood, they take it back to their father, and they, they convince him that he's dead. And Jacob's distraught. Jacob's so full, of, like so mournful, he says, I'm going to mourn for the rest of my life because my favorite son is dead. And the brothers think they've gotten revenge, not against Shechem this time, but against their own father, against their own brother. Maybe now, maybe now dad will pay attention to us. Maybe now dad will show us love and favoritism. 
maybe now. This family was a mess. You know, these grown men, remember, these aren't like boys. Joseph was much younger, and he was already 17. These brothers were adult men acting like little children because they were so much jealousy, so much hatred, so much pain, so much hurt in their lives. It just has built up and built up and built up over time. And the role, the role of the older brother, right? The role of the older brother is to be, supposed to be the protector, right? The defender of the younger siblings. And they're completely the opposite. So if anybody, you know, like Joseph, if, how could any person like Joseph ever come from that kind of an experience, that kind of a family, and ever function in any kind of capacity in normal life, right? How could somebody ever go through that and do that? How? Kingdom resilience. Kingdom resilience, one step at a time with God. That's what we're going to see over the future weeks as we continue to look at Joseph, that God is with Joseph every step of the way, and that even when he's in a pit, he's with him. And he just invites Joseph to take the one next step with him. Step left foot, right foot. And we see Joseph grow in amazing resilience over his lifetime and go on to do mighty and amazing things. Now, a couple of things that we can learn from this story quickly. One, addressing family mess is often the first step in growth towards resilience. Addressing our family mess, dealing with it, talking about it, not avoiding it, not sweeping it under the rug anymore, but actually confronting it and addressing it is one of the first things that God, first ways that God wants us to grow in kingdom resilience. You know, when I talk to people, when I sit and counsel people, when I uh, recommend people going to clinical counseling, you know, so much of counseling is, is dealing with the woundings of our families, isn't it? The woundings of parents, the woundings of siblings, the woundings of grandparents, aunts or uncles, spouses, you know, these people who are, we're closest to are often the ones who, whether it's intentionally or unintentionally, hurt us the most. But for so many people, family wounds begin to heal when they come into the family of God. When they come into the family, when they accept God's offer to be adopted into his family. When, when, when we recognize that he's our perfect father, not Jacob, right? That Jesus is our loving older brother, not Joseph's, like Joseph's older brothers, but Jesus, the one who, who didn't just throw, didn't throw us in the pit, he went into the pit for us. He took our place in the pit, right? Like the, the way the old, an older brother should be. When we begin to, to acknowledge that and experience that and become aware of our being in that kind of a family, that kind of love, that kind of forgiveness, that kind of encouragement, that kind of kindness, all of that, then we begin to grow, we begin to heal, we begin to become stronger and more resilient. Second, second takeaway is that passivity creates favoritism, and favoritism pits families against each other. The passivity of Jacob literally leads to Joseph being put in a pit. But the pitting against Joseph and his brother started many, many years before that, built up over a long period of time of things that went unaddressed and undealt with. And if you're a parent here today, like I am, I just want to challenge you, like I've been challenging myself this week, to take some time to just go before God and just say, Lord, is there any way that I might be passive right now, 
within in parenting any of my kids, whether they're little and young or they're grown adults? Is there any way that I, that I might be passive with them? And you might call me to be more active in their lives. And, and being an active parent doesn't mean being an aggressive parent. It doesn't mean being even a strict parent. It means being an involved parent. It means walking into stuff with them. It means talking about things with them. You know, one of the things that my wife Sarah and I are ruthless about, that we are ruthless about our, with our kids, is anytime we see any kind of sibling rivalry or jealousy creep in, which is very often, uh, is that we are ruthless about saying the same thing. We just say this over and over again. We say, no, no, no. We celebrate each other in this family. We celebrate each other in this family. So when one of them starts to get a little jealous, because the one had a, scored a touchdown in their football game, and we're like happy for them. It's like, no, 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 no. We're celebrating. We celebrate each other in this family. Because tomorrow, we're going to celebrate you when you get an A on the math test. You know, we're going to celebrate your other sibling the next day when, it's, when blah, blah, blah happens, right? We celebrate each other regularly because we don't favor one of you. We favor all of you. We favor all of you. And that's how God feels about all of us. That's how God feels about you. That you're his favorite, and you're his favorite, and you're his favorite, and you're his favorite. They were all favorites of God. And when we begin to embrace that, and we realize how much he fiercely loves us, and we give that love to each other, then we grow it as a family of God. Then we grow together in unity as the family of God. Amen? Amen. Now, we're going to kind of switch gears here. And we're going to go into a time of worship a little bit here. But before we do that, we're going to celebrate as a family. We're going to celebrate as a family. We have one individual here today who's going to be baptized. And uh, we're going to celebrate him as, as, brother, as, his, as, his, as our brother in the kingdom of God. And one of the most beautiful things about baptism is that it's an outward sign of an inward decision to follow and walk with Jesus. It's to accept God's invitation of being adopted into his loving family. And so I'm, um, I'm going to invite uh, this individual up here in a second. But if you're here today and you've never been baptized, I want to let you know it's not too late that you too can be baptized, that we'd love to baptize you today. Uh, you know, if, if you would say, hey, I, I want to be a part of that kind of a family. You know, my, my family's a mess. And I don't, I've never experienced that kind of love uh, of a family before. That, that you can do that too. That Jesus died for you to be forgiven of your sins so that you could be a part of this family. And so if you want to do that, I'll, I'll, I'm gonna, you know, you're welcome to come up here in a second as well. Um, but, uh, why don't, well, Lane, why don't you, why don't you start, why don't you call it Lane Summers. Let's, let's give Lane a round of applause. Awesome. Nice. Perfect. All right. So it's a big deal today to be baptized. And so we want to celebrate you today, Lane. And is there anybody else here? Because we have clothes that you can change into. If you're thinking, I can't get wet in my clothes. How am I going to make it? We have clothes you can change into. Is there anybody else here today who would like to get baptized? We just asked if you're a young person that you'd be at least 10 years or older. Check with your parents first. But anybody else? No? Well, you're welcome to surprise me and come on up here. If you feel the God nudging you to do that, we want you to do that. Now, so Lane, uh, there's this old tradition that when a person would get baptized in the early church, that oftentimes there would be two people that would represent two different individuals. 
One would represent Jesus, and that's going to be played by me, of course, right? No, I'm just kidding. And the other represents and takes the place of Satan. That one, Bill's, Bill's been generous to say, I will take on that role for today. He's about the least likely person to ever play that role. But so here's how it's going to work. So I'm going to kind of come over here, and Bill's going to stand over here. here. I don't know what I was just talking. And Lane, I just want you to turn and face Bill. He's going to ask you just a, a question. And then after you, after you answer, that, answer that question, yes, then you're just going to turn away from him and turn towards me, if that makes sense, okay, as a symbol of, of turning away from him. So. Excellent. Then you, yeah. Now, traditionally, you would spit at him, but we're going to avoid that today with COVID. Uh, I don't think that's a good idea. But so now, now, so now, as you're facing me, uh, Lane, do you willingly choose Jesus Christ as your Savior, believing that He died on the cross and paid the debt for your sins? Do you willingly choose Jesus as your Lord, submitting your life to Him? As you go down in the water, you are symbolically dying to yourself and being raised to life in Jesus, a new creation, adopted into his family, cleansed from all your sins, blameless and holy before God, not by your own works, but only by the grace of Jesus Christ on the cross. Is that your desire today? Excellent. Well, then let's, let's get you baptized. Before we do that, though, I want to invite your wife up. If we have some small group leaders or some individuals, or if you have any family or friends, we just want to have a couple of leaders. We just want to pray a, a quick blessing over you, Lane. And so we'll do that here real quick. So if you want to come on up, and we have a couple of leaders in the church, Bill, if you want to come back on up, we're just going to take a minute to just pray for you, okay? Well, thanks so much for joining us today. I hope that what you heard has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and to contact us, go to vcdc.org. We'll bless you. Have a wonderful week.